Welcome everyone to another episode of the Let's Talk Surgery podcast. I am Gregory Carter, a colorectal registrar up north in Edinburgh and your humble host. And with me as always, good friend, Ceci, how are you? Um, I'm fine, Greg. I'm absolutely tickled at the concept of you being humble anything. But that is a discussion for another day, but I'm doing okay. I'm glad I'm excited Uh, to be here. Good. I'm only humble now because on the last episode, one of my bosses was on the show, Jason Leach, and he put me in my place. So humility has found me, not by choice. Anyway, we digress. This today is not about me. Today, I'm delighted to say we're joined by, I think she's now an ex-member of the trainees committee, but spent a lot of time on the trainees committee and did a lot of good work, which hopefully she will share with us today. Joining us is Beth Lennon, orthopedic registrar from Yorkshire in England. Beth, Hi. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Good, thanks. Welcome to the podcast. You and I met back in 2019, back when people learned to shake hands, hug each other, not uh, any of those things, but <laughs> trying to meet face to face. Obviously, a lot has changed since the last time I saw you. How are you keeping through these times? Yeah, really good. Yeah, really good, actually. Yeah, it's Excellent. a shame we can't get to Edinburgh anymore, but yeah, good. You are on the show today to talk about some important work that you've been doing uh, along with other members of the trainees committee, but we'll come to that shortly. What we try to do on the podcast is get to know the individual behind the message. So who is Beth Wynum? Goodness. Uh, So ST6, Trauma Orthopaedics um, in Yorkshire. I've been here since F1. Also recently mummy as of six months ago. Thank you. Dog owner. What else can you say? <laughs> well, I'll, tr- I'll try to tease out some of the others things from you. <laughs> the next thing we do is some quick fire questions. I will put you through all five of them, but very quickly, recent mother, what's the, f- what's the best thing about motherhood? Oh, it's just so funny. I didn't realize, I didn't know children motherhood were so funny. Motherhood or a baby? <laughs> <And> a baby. <laughs> Every day, it's just so funny. Oh, that's nice. Next thing, if orthopedics was not a concept, and this is what we ask a lot of people in the hope that some people will take colorectal surgery, but <laughs> orthopedics is no longer on the curriculum. If there was anything else you could do, surgery or otherwise, what would it be? I would have done music. Oh, <laughs> been a excellent. I don't think, no, I wouldn't have done medicine. I did quite like vascular and plastics as well. So I did, okay. I sort of, I did both in F2 and F1 to see what they were like. But yeah, I finally settled on orthopedics. Settled. I like that. What is the one thing you're looking forward to post-lockdown? I just want to go and sit. I mean, this isn't even post-lockdown because this might be happening in a couple of weeks. I just want to go and sit in a beer garden and have a beer. I can't <laughs> wait. I'm so excited. I've nearly booked a slot already, but I haven't because it's going to be too depressing if it doesn't happen. What are you going for first, a haircut or a pint? I, I cut my, I've been cutting my own hair. I, I do not care about haircut <laughs> at all. I cannot wait to go to So around the time of January 2019, there is a flood in the United Kingdom and then Noah's Ark is deployed to save us all. There is only one spot left on Noah's Ark. All your nearest and dearest are on, but there's one slot and there's three people vying for that position. The first is Mike Griffin, President of the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh. The second is Rowan Parks, Vice President, Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh. And the third is Paula Rajesh, Vice President, Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh. <laughs> actually, there's a fourth person that turns up. David Writing 
former oh. president of the trainees or chair of the trainees <laughs> committee. And you only have one uh, seat on the arc. Oh, Who would you let goodness. On oh, I'd make them fight it out. Just survival <laughs> of the fittest, whoever won. Gladiator style. Yeah, oh, exactly. I wasn't, I wasn't expecting that, actually. <laughs> I thought you'd go with David. Oh, wow. Oh, I know. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, he's listening now thinking, oh, there's that friend of mine. Yeah, I thought she was going to save me. But, survival of the fittest, uh, isn't it? Wow. Touché, like a true orthopod. I like it. <laughs> I would not want to come against you if there was ever anything <laughs> to compete for. Oh, I wouldn't win. Oh, my goodness. Uh, the next thing is just a little bit about your journey. So you're an orthopedic registrar, but I seem to believe you went to medical school where? A UEA, Norwich. And just talk us through your journey from, from med school to orthopedics. I think you alluded to it a little bit earlier about some of the other things that you could have done. Yeah, so I mean, pre-medical school, I, I was sort of like science and people went for medicine, did sort of think about doing music. I thought if I do medicine, I can still do music. Whereas if I do music, probably not allowed to still do medicine. So went yep, for the medicine like side logic. of things. Yeah, decided orthopedics probably about third or fourth year. I just realised I liked all of the surgical things we did at systems based. So all of the all of the surgical ones I really enjoyed, and all of the medicine I didn't, even though I thought I was going to. Um, and then because I'd grown up in a village in Suffolk and then went to Norwich Medical School, I sort of thought I need to go to a city. So we looked around at a few different ones and then I've been at Leeds from F1. So so really from then onwards, I've been in the Yorkshire Deanery and been pretty much in West Yorkshire for all of that, apart from six months in Scunthorpe. Well, I think you sell yourself too short. Um, you're a very, very impressive <laughs> lady um, from what I have heard. I guess one of the things that um, is really important for us to talk about is the recent paper that has been published on the college website, and it looks very much at out of hours working, which is something that a lot of us have to deal with. And um, for those of you listening, please go check out this paper. It's a nine page document. Well, actually, seven pages if you take off the cover and the end bit. And it talks about a lot of recommendations from a survey that the trainees committee have done. So I'd be interested to know what gave the writing group the idea to do this and what was the writing process and design of the survey like? It was actually, it was a meeting we had pretty much straight after the, um, the whole situation around Bawagaba came out. Mm -hmm. So I think it was very soon after that story had broken. It was the first all of us had heard about it. And we were sort of sitting around and, and talking about it. And I think looking at all of the systems that failed on that day and all of the issues that had happened, all of us were thinking, well, that that could have been me. You know, if I was in that situation, I'm sure the outcome would have been similar, if not the same. You know, it was it was just astounding, the lack of... Um, support and systems working and everything that had happened and we were just and then you, you know you start talking as you do in a group and thinking about when have I felt like this when have I been in a situation where I felt that vulnerable mm -hmm. um, and that out of control and pretty much all of the stories we shared were times when we'd been out of hours on call and out of our shifts 
Um, and we sort of thought, well, what is it about out of hours that makes you feel that you don't have that safety, you don't feel in control? And that's when all of this idea came about. We thought, well, these are the issues that are affecting us. Let's see if other people have had a similar experience. And that's why we wanted to do the survey of the members. Um, that came back with some really interesting results. And then we wrote the report based on the outcome of that survey. Fantastic. Um, I mean, it's so sobering hearing the experiences that you guys all had that was shared because, um, I mean, a paediatric friend of mine, we would just, when that came out, we just thought to ourselves, that could be just another Tuesday. Yeah, it was shocking, wasn't it? Absolutely shocking. And we can all think of examples in our personal and professional lives where the systems have seemed to exist to only let us fail. There were not adequate supervision or resources in place for us to do things to the best of our ability. So it's really important, this piece of work you've done. Now, um, just delving deeper into the paper, you identified or the survey identified a few areas that you felt were specific challenges to adequate trainee working. Would you mind expanding a bit on that for us to just know a bit more about it? Yeah, there were a few different areas. I think um, uh, sort of changes in the firm structures and issues. So people don't know who their trainees are. People don't know um, what their level is. They don't know what the issue is they're struggling with. And I think that came out in the sort of supervision in the survey that people had mentioned. Um, Centralisation, which in itself is a wonderful thing. You know, it's a good thing. It, it, It means the systems can be more coordinated. But um, it means that I don't know if systems have really kept up with that. So when you're having tertiary referrals, um, a lot of the times you can't see these patient images, you can't see their results. You're talking to somebody, you don't know who they are. There's no, there's no way to document what you've said. There's no way to document what the other person has said. Um, and that came out in the survey as well, massively. Um, and also the system. So a lot of things have become online and I think you know again that's great I remember having to walk 20 minutes to write a discharge summary and now you can just tap 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 and it's done it's great yeah um but if those systems don't work or they don't um you know they're not keeping up with what you need to do that's not really acceptable and also every time you go to a different place you need to learn a whole bunch of different systems and I don't know about you guys, but whenever I've, I don't think I've ever had or I've maybe had one or two inductions where I've had access to everything I needed following that induction since systems like this have come into place. Um, and yeah, so there's a lot of different challenges which have come up really recently. There's, you know, they're not, these are the things within the last 10 years. I mean, I, I know them, they've all been changing. I only qualified for middle school at 2012. Mm-hmm. And these things have sort of been increasing since then. Um, yeah and those those were the sort of things that we thought were going to be issues and then in the survey it did seem to that other people were having the same the same problems that we were having yeah of course um I don't know if you have any thoughts Greg because I'm sure there are a lot of themes that you can identify with yeah I think the first thing to say is congratulations to you Beth and and the others on the trainees committee for the piece of work but also highlighting some really important issues that trainees not just in England but you know across the UK um, have issues with. The one thing that's of interest is a very difficult balance in the firm structure that we talked about so if you particularly for crafts uh, specialties like ours in, in surgery and, and the 
the move away from the firm structure where you know you had a either one or two consultants that looked after you throughout whether it's a year or, or six months or whatever of your training and you sort of knew who your trainer was and your trainer knew who you were and could really tailor your training to your need but obviously there's the other school of thought that having multiple consultants scrutinize your performance and, and help train you is it's also better for you i guess what are your thoughts around that particular point around the move away from the firm and some of the advantages of having multi-consultant training versus single consultant training yeah absolutely i mean it's interesting because as registrars you probably still do have that firm structure you know you're still with your consultant all of the time i think it's the core trainees that really suffer in the f1s and f2s because they just aren't getting that quite often nobody knows their name people don't know who they are people don't know they've rotated um which is really it's really not fair at all and of course that means that they're not getting supervised and i think as an f1 f2 core trainee you don't necessarily need you're still going to see multiple consultants you don't necessarily need to know the ins and outs of hand surgery or hip and knee surgery you just need somebody to be there as a constant and take you through that and actually you lose out on if you're not being supervised you lose out on that um sort of support that you need to be able to learn more and to just to be able to progress and so but then it's it's difficult you know because of the um european work time directive which i you know it's a really good thing it's absolutely necessary um we have I've been in a place recently where we had a firm structure and we had a core trainee attached to our team. So the consultants worked in teams who so were with sort of three consultants and the core trainee should have been there as well. Yeah. Um, and actually we saw them less than we saw the foundation doctor. So the foundation doctor was with us a lot and had good continuity. But the core trainee, because they were doing a lot of nights, we rarely ever saw them and they didn't get that continuity. And I don't know how you then balance that. I think making sure they are well rested is the most important thing. Yeah, but making sure that as trainee or as trainers or as supervisors you also know who your trainee is and you know what they're capable of and part of the recommendations are that as well when you're supervising somebody know what their level is and know what they can do and just include them in your in your team is helpful yeah definitely because I think we're only as good as the members of the team that we work with and it's not about one person having ultimate responsibility for patient safety it's all our responsibility and I think it's really important to keep the human element to the practice of medicine just something as simple as asking what somebody's name is and making the effort to remember what their name is as well can have such a huge impact on that person's morale yeah so and um, what do you want to do and how exactly. can I progress that and do you need any audits or anything like that and you just see people sort of light up and that's just what they needed and a exactly. lot of people especially if they're not the typical person that you expect for that specialty they can sometimes feel very sort of other and different and actually if they're not included they won't end up doing you know they'll go and do something else they'll go and end up taking you out or whatever they they might not be feel involved in that and and they also might not raise concerns they've got as well that's very true and I think sometimes one thing I've experienced is getting FY1s for instance that are not necessarily interested in surgery and that's okay because we need all sorts of people to do all sorts of jobs they can sometimes feel a bit marginalized, especially in the presence of a strong character who wants to do surgery. And I think it's yeah. important to recognize what everyone wants to do and try and 
tailor learning towards their specific interests. So if, say, they want to do radiology, taking them through images rather than focusing on the technical aspects of the operation can be very useful. But we talked a lot about recommendations and we've already talked about um, clinical supervision. There were a few other recommendations that you guys made in your paper. Do you want to just go through them in sequence and talk a little bit more about them, please? So we did... We did this in a specific um, structure because these were the, so we've done it electronic systems, then supervision, then training, then staffing, then facilities, because that was actually the order of um, examples or, or sort of aspirations that people had in the, the, the number of aspirations that people had. So we asked people at the end of the survey what they would like, what's the one thing that would make things better for you? And you expect it to be, I want a bed for the night or I want I want there to be enough stuff, which I think everybody wants that. Yeah. Most people mention systems. And I don't know whether that's because the survey mentioned systems a lot, but um, we mentioned all of these five areas and, and most people had an issue with the systems that they were using. So I think it was, it was two thirds of people said they were dissatisfied with the electronic systems that they used, which is huge. Yeah. Um, and 75% of people didn't have access to everything they needed, which is just, yeah, it's just shocking. So what we try to do in the report as well is to highlight areas of good practice because we didn't want to, you know, if you make a, a load of recommendations, it's quite easy to look at those recommendations and say, well, you know, what about money? It's not, you know, it's not feasible. It's not something we can do at this time. Whereas if, you know the examples of good practice these are all things that are already in place that you know it's not it's not unicorns and rainbows that we're asking for it's things that are already in place across hospitals across the UK um, so it was things like uh, for electronic systems if you have remote consultations just have a formal online documentation system yeah and um, I think that's really necessary because I've I've worked in places where we were taking tertiary referrals from other places and we had nowhere to document what we'd said um, and it's just in this day and age just not acceptable and um, something where the, where Scotland's really ahead of England is in the uh, imaging that's available yeah. when you're doing remote consultation so I think in Scotland you've got access to PACs throughout Scotland we do, and it's um, particularly useful for someone like myself. So, as a, some of our listeners may remember, I'm a pediatric surgery trainee, and because it's such a small specialty, the area, the geographic area we cover per hospital is huge. So, the opportunity to be able to look at images from a hospital 150 miles away, I, I just cannot stress how important it is. Yeah. Whereas, when I did my core training in Newcastle and a little bit of registrar stint there as well, we didn't have those facilities. So, we had to rely on WhatsApp and emails, which can be so disruptive. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's so stressful when you're that person who's you know, getting bleeped and they say, Can you see the images? No, I can't see the images. Phone back in two hours. Yeah. And it's just unbelievable. But now, actually, in Yorkshire, we have got access to all of this, this all of the um, images within that within Yorkshire, which uh, only came in in the last couple of years. And it's just an absolute godsend. It's so so helpful. Um, but we're still sending if you know if we need to send images to the rest to other areas, so sort of cancer referrals mm-hmm. that is still going over the sort of X-ray systems, which is fine but it could when you see scotland can do it and i think also you got have you got blood tests centralized as well or is that coming 
Um, to sure a point, was, um, yeah. And there's also um systems in in between specific hospitals and areas where you can access patient letters. Um, particularly important to me from a pediatric point of view, the Badger system has records from neonates across the whole of Scotland, and that is so useful when you need to look at what feed they've been getting or antibiotics. It's just yeah, a absolutely. game changer. I think patients expect it as well. When pa I've so often in clinic have patients say, oh, I was in hospital in Wakefield last week. You can see that on your computer, can't you? <laughs> no, absolutely not. I can't, see I can't even see your x-rays, although I can now. But yeah, they standardise systems. And I think as well, the um, if you have systems in an area, if the same hospitals that you are rotating to in an area have the same systems, the amount of time saved for induction the, the lack of you know the learning curve when you start using a new system it just wastes so much time and it causes so much stress I think to doctors if you're starting out of hours or or and you don't know how your systems work and um yeah it's not great for patient care when you can't when you know that there are things available that you don't have access to so yeah we said that imaging should be available that you have to have access to all of your systems when you start your placement it can't be something that comes with drips and drabs throughout the next couple of weeks or the next couple of months while you're starting um, and communication systems as well so you mentioned about sort of whatsapp and email and um, another thing that came out in the survey was that 50 percent of doctors had seen an adverse an adverse event occur because of lack of wi-fi mm which, you know, if we're using those systems, it should be something that works. I, I think it's fine to use those systems, but it has to be something which actually works in practice. Um, so if we're using bleeps, they have to work. If we're using deck phones, it has to work. Um, and all too often, it, I think it doesn't work. I think uh, just on the, on the point about IT systems, particularly around induction, what baffles me the most is it's amazing how rotations there's a few things that are fixed, okay? Taxes are one of them, death is the other, but junior doctor rotation is also one of them. And the dates that we rotate is also fairly constant. The first, when, for, for us in Scotland anyway, the first Wednesday of certain months, you know people are gonna change over. And also the department, I hope, will know, with some advanced warning that new people are coming along who haven't worked here before. So the notion that people turn up and don't have the relevant IT systems in place for when they start, mm -hmm. recognizing that some of them have to start on call or on nights, still baffles me to this day because you know six weeks at least in advance because the trainees should know six weeks in advance that they're coming to your hospital or department. So how we as a collective can't get our act together to have these things in place for when people actually start continues to baffle me. And I wonder if there was any evidence of good practice within your survey as to how other trusts or hospitals or departments have managed to do it and do it well over time that we could draw upon. So some areas have centralized employment information. So they can, it's not just that every single hospital has to relearn who all of their people are. So at least they, they've got that documentation in place. Um, as a personal experience, I've been somewhere where at my induction, somebody walked me around the hospital, showed me where everything was, gave me access. I got access to everything. And then the next day I was in clinic and someone came down and taught me how to use the dictation system. It was amazing. That was in Airedale. So good. I've never had that anywhere else, but it was, it was, it was really impressive. And it just shows that it can, 
be done. And, you know, I, I think, again, something that we didn't mention was that just knowing where everything is in the hospital. Yeah. How many of you started on call and you don't even know where A&E is? And I just don't think that would really be acceptable in a different, in a different company, a different, you know, you'd, you'd be expected to know where everything you needed to be is. Yeah, it's quite sad that this um, these things that you're describing, it's the exception rather than the norm. It seems so luxurious that someone will take the time to make sure you have everything in place for you to do your job well, rather than spending so many minutes, at least in my case, hyperventilating in the corner because I just cannot find out where yeah. I'm going. I'm on call in the first week in a new job, in a new hospital. You don't know where anything is. You don't know who anyone is. Yeah, it's it's incredibly stressful, but somehow it is very stressful. It's very stressful, and it's dangerous. It is. I think it's completely unacceptable. This is why. I mean, hopefully, with the report, at least it gives trainees some ammunition to go to the trust and say, "Look, this is this is what the Royal College of Edinburgh says that we should have in place. Why this is what I had on my induction? Because I've mentioned things at induction before, and there's no. I've never found any sort of guideline or advice on what I should actually be having so much. And, you know, there are obviously everybody knows that you should have everything in place in your induction. But having something that actually is very practical and says this is exactly what you should have, hopefully that will be helpful for people to raise concerns with induction. Well, we've talked quite a bit about um, the systems. Um, There are other parts to this document so you mentioned things like training staffing and facilities can we explore that a little bit more yeah so one of the other parts was about the supervision Mm -hmm. so I think this this sort of goes partly with what we were talking about firms earlier and it also partly is um again with systems but just knowing your rotor and knowing who's on sometimes you don't know or or changes get made and it's not updated and things like that um, it was a really nice thing that anaesthetic practice have done. So we've got the Cappuccini audit tool, and it is slightly skewed to anaesthetist because I think you, it's an audit tool where you go to elective lists, you just ask the trainee who's running the list, do you, who is supervising you, how do you get hold of them? And then you call the person who's supposed to be supervising them and say, do you know who you're supervising? Do you know what their level is? Um, and how would you help them now if they needed to? Or how would you get to them now if they needed to? I think that's a really simple thing that actually shows that um, sometimes you don't know who's supervising. And it's probably more, I mean, we don't really get left in lists without supervisors, but thinking on out of on on um, out of hours shifts. So as a registrar, I'm definitely guilty of not knowing my SHR. I don't know their level. I've been thinking back to many times of there's just a name on a rotor and maybe it's the start and I sort of leave them at hand. Are you okay? Okay, fine. Especially, you know, a locum or somebody like that. Yeah. Um, whereas actually what you need to know is how much of the have you done? What are you comfortable with? If you needed to aspirate a knee, would you be happy? Do you know you can call me and I could be there in 15 minutes? It's not an issue. And just really simple things like that. And actually it's, the more seen you get, the more you have to be aware of that. And even for core trainees with their F1s, have you ever done this before? Are you aware of what you're doing? And I think the focus then is on the supervisor, not the not the supervisee. They're the ones who should be leading that supervision. They should be aware of what their their junior is capable of and what they're and what they know. And it also mentioned we also mentioned in the report about just being 
something which isn't really down to us, but something I think we should be pushing for is that rotation should be as long as possible. So rather than being in one hospital for six months, one hospital for six months, you should ideally you really want to be in the same place for a year. And I know I always do as a junior, so I don't really know where that comes from. Because if you think about changing everything, it's surely for the trust as well, having you in one place for a year is, is more beneficial. And I think supervision is a lot easier when, when people know who you are and know what you're doing. And obviously people have to be contactable. Um, yeah. Um, I've, I've certainly felt the benefits of that um, Pete surgery um, as a registrar. You rotate every three years on average. That's so you get, it is, um, I guess it's just because, as I say, it's quite a small specialty. There's very few hospitals that um, provide pediatric surgery, higher specialist training. But the beauty of that is that you get to know your team really well. You get to know patients really well. And you, you just feel more part of the system and part of the general machinery rather than a spare part, so to speak. But, um, have you had a different experience to that, Greg? I'm sure you must have a thought about that. Colorectal is a slightly bigger specialty. And, and so we, we move around a little bit more from a good practice point of view up in Southeast Scotland. There is a drive to try to keep you in the same place for a year, at least where possible. But there are certain specialties that are sort of adjunct specialties like vascular and, and breast, where you wouldn't really need to spend a year as a, as a colorectal trainee, but where possible we try to do that. But really just to pick up on the point you made about out of our supervision, both from a trainee's point of view, as a registrar being trained and as a registrar training others, when this piece of work was done early on during your engagement with other stakeholders, I happened to be in, in one of the rooms where you were presenting this work. And, and I remember actually thinking about it afterwards, that specific point about do I know who I am supervising today? So do I know who my SHO is? And, and since then, actually, as a credit to you guys, I've made a point of, one, knowing who they are, because obviously you need to know that from uh, working with you for the next 12 hours point of view, but more importantly, knowing what they can do and what they can't do. And then taking a step further in and asking them, what is it you want to get out of these set of nights or these set of on-call days? So from a general point of view, if you're an FY2, do you, you know, have you done any appendectomies? Fairly common. That's what everybody wants to do. How many have you done? How much of it do you think you can do? If you're a core trainee, are you at a point where you can do these with me on scrub supervising? That sort of thing. So credit to you guys for putting that thought in my head for one. And I'm sure there are many people out there as well who will read this document and, and listen to you talk about it and think to themselves, that's something very simple I can do straight after handover. Who are you? What's your grade? What have you done? And what do you want to do? For the next three nights for the next seven days for the next four days whatever it is so a a testimony as to how your piece of work has changed uh, my practice and i'm sure there'll be other people out there similar definitely and i guess to add to that um do you know how to contact me because you'd be surprised they just dis disappear into oblivion and you it's so disheartening that the few times i've come back after a non-resident on call and found out that for a brief period in time, the, I don't know, the FY, the core trainee didn't know how to contact me or if they could, it just makes me so sad. So I always try and make it a point of duty to say, this is my mobile and you can get me via switch. <laughs> it's okay to contact me. You can contact me. It's my job yeah. to be contacted. Yeah. But kind of moving on um, from supervision and being contactable, what about the findings you had about training and staffing just going further along the paper so to speak yeah 
So again, in training, we mentioned induction, which I think we've covered quite a lot, but just training yeah. and all of the systems. Um, one thing that came out of the survey as well was how unhappy people were about cross-covering specialties. Um, and I think people felt a lot of anxiety about that, a lot of fear, a lot of um, a lot of feeling that they hadn't really been trained in any way to cross-cover different specialties. Um, and it wasn't, as you can imagine, it was less sort of respondents, but there was a big majority of them that were, that were quite unhappy with that. Um, and something that we did really well in Yorkshire, actually, I think when I first started in, in core training was you had a few days of induction before you started core surgical training and it covered all of the specialties that you might be asked to cover within that. And it was just a little bit of each and what you might be covering um, it just to allay some of the fears. Because I think actually, you know, I remember thinking I'm going to have to cover ENT and I was thinking I'm going to be called to all the airways and obviously I was never called to anything they called the registrar yes <laughs> they didn't want me turning up um, <laughs> the orthopedic SHA also doing ENT but it was a lot of it was the fear and, and I think people felt that and they just didn't feel supported and again you don't know people so you're covering a specialty and you've never met any of the registrars you've never met any of any of the rest of the team um, and it was just really nice to have those. I think it was three days actually where you went and you and you met everybody and and looked at every single specialty. And that was a really good thing that we had. And I would highly recommend that. And that was um, sort of led by the consultant. Another thing is getting feedback on the rotations, which I think is really good because, and I think that's really necessary. And I don't know if everywhere does that really to get feedback from the juniors on what they found good and what they found bad and what more training they need next time um no I don't think many places do that but it's one thing one good thing that's come out of the pandemic is um I guess collaborative working and I'm sure many people who are listening myself included have had to cross cover specialties in the early stages of the pandemic for example we covered plastics in in kids and it was really great that the consultants, like your example um, about ENT and giving some education, took the time out to do teaching sessions. And I think this is something that's happened in a lot of other hospitals due to the pandemic. And I'm hoping that this is something that will continue moving forward because it's not just relevant for now, it's relevant for the future if yeah. people have to cross cover. Yeah, and I, yeah. And I think a lot of, once you had that information, you are probably, it was probably absolutely fine. It was probably completely within what you could do, but it was just, yeah. it's having that sort of, oh, I've never done this before. I don't know what this is. It's not my thing. I don't, I don't really want to be covering this. And it's helpful for the, I think the registrars and the consultants as well, because they get a junior who's then engaged and yeah. wants to be involved with what they're doing and who can actually sort of do it without calling you, without having it actually tried anything. Um, a big part, and then Greg and I were talking about this um, just before you came on, was this whole concept of facilities and rest and being able to get food out of hours. Um, Don't get me started. <laughs> no, we, were, we, was, we were mad. We were so mad about it. I'm sure everyone can relate to that whole 2am vending machine chocolate just to keep you going. And then you wake up the next day and you just feel awful. So do you want to talk about that bit of the report and what you guys found? Yeah. It was interesting that not so many people mentioned it because I thought it would be absolutely number one. Yeah. Um, there has been a lot of really good work by other 
other sort of uh, groups as well. So BMA, obviously, they have released loads of money for um, doctors' messes. And I think if people don't know where that money's gone in your hospital, it's important to know where that is, to know if your mess is being updated. Yep. Um, because I have heard of it being used for or being trying to use for other things. <laughs> um, but it, is, and it was a big amount of money. And and I've seen it make some really positive changes. Um, so that's really good. And just getting rest areas, specifically benchmarked for rest areas for doctors. Um, again, I have had a good experience of wet as well as uh, when I'm doing non-resident on-call shifts, but I've actually stayed in hospital accommodation because I live too far away, having a kitchen with loads of meals in it, which, you know, it doesn't sound amazing, but it was amazing because that's that's exactly what you want. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and also um, car parking. So not having car parking that's far away. And, you know, when you have to come back to the hospital at sort of two in the morning or whatever, having somewhere where you can park that isn't really far away and is dark at two in the morning, especially I think as a woman, um, early hours of the morning and having somewhere you can park that you know you're going to be okay to stay in until that morning handover as well. So lots of places we found when we were looking for best practice examples had specific areas for, for out of hours and also had a sort of a closed off car park, which was opened after five or whatever for people who were working those, those later shifts is ideal. Some of these things are just basic common sense, you know, to think that I am on call, I'm not in the hospital, I might have to come in the one in the morning, can I park somewhere? I think that's not rocket science. But, you know, thankfully, from a good practice point of view, there are a lot of hospitals that I've worked in where, you know, if you're on call, then you've got, sort of got an on-call pass into a car park, for example. So those are things that other hospitals and trusts can also learn from. On the point of rest areas, both during the shift, but also after the shift, did you get a sense of what the general perception was? Is there a increasing recognition that rest is important, both during the shift and after the shift? And was there a lot of good practice examples of where on call, you know, out of hours on call, you do have a place where you can go rest your head for 20 minutes, 30 minutes or whatever? I think people are much more aware of their rights now. And I don't know if that's something you think as well, but when I, I think when I was first starting F1, F2 call training, it was almost like you weren't supposed to, you felt guilty for trying to sleep overnight. So you felt, then you never had anywhere to sleep after, after a night shift. That wasn't expected. Um, whereas now it's more, it's your right, it's what is expected. And I think the anaesthetists have done some wonderful work on the fighting exactly. campaign, yeah. um, which I think is really visible I mean it's certainly something that I'm aware of because I've been doing this work as well but it is something that I think the wider um sort of health professionals are aware of as well and I hear less and less consultants saying they shouldn't be sleeping overnight when you sort of say well this is the trainees need you need rest where where is their room especially with with COVID places have uh space is reduced hasn't it because yeah. you need more space for the same amount of people so some areas which were previously office spaces or rest spaces for junior doctors have decreased and actually I've found consultants very supportive in in trying to find somewhere for the juniors to be and saying oh and actually we've got some mess money let's spend it for this and things like that and actually everybody's been very supportive and I've heard a lot less of the juniors shouldn't be sleeping overnight 
Yeah, you're right. The narrative has certainly changed over yeah. time. I, I certainly remember being an FY1 and not being told you're not supposed to, but being told you cannot go to sleep because you're being paid to be up for 12 hours. And and as you say, the, the Royal College of Anesthetists have done a fantastic job and the Association of Anesthetists, I think, as well, yeah. uh, in their Fighting Fatigue campaign. And Ceci, maybe that's something we should do on, on the podcast, actually, to get them on and get them to talk about it, because I think there's a lot we, as a surgical community, could learn from what they've done, because they have shown enough evidence that when you're tired, you make bad decisions. When you've not had adequate rest, your performance goes down. And with those comes patient safety, negative impact and effects. And so if if there's anybody out there who still thinks that a doctor is not supposed to sleep overnight because you're being paid to be up, obviously no one's suggesting that, you know, there's your department is very busy and you just <laughs> off to sleep and leaving unwell patients. That's not the point. I think we all recognize that, but it's more, you know, encouraging people to take breaks. And it's not necessarily about just sleeping, but it's about going somewhere, bleep phone free to you know get some rest for 20 30 minutes whatever it is based on your shift uh, length and getting that rest but also as important as that is the ability to rest within the the area of the hospital if you live too far away rather than driving an hour and a half after a 13 hour shift with no sleep during the shift because you weren't allowed to and now you've got to go drive an hour clearly we you know, there's enough examples out there of, of people come to harm from that so yeah, I and i guess i'm just moving away from this um, notion that's a badge of honor to be sleep deprived and tired it's not cute on anybody and it's definitely not cute for your patients if you're walking around like a zombie and as you say that and the work that the Royal College of Anesthetists have done is fantastic but I mean also from a GP perspective there was a publication a few years ago that compared the effects of sleep deprivation to being intoxicated mm. and you won't want an intoxicated person looking after you so you definitely don't want someone sleep deprived looking after you so I think it's really important all these things we're talking about. Through the process after you got all this data and in the writing of the report what has been the engagement with other stakeholders BMA, GMC, RCOA and, and others? And we presented it at one of the um, GMC Wellbeing. So GMC Scotland uh, Wellbeing Advisory Group were really heard the results of the survey and we're really interested in that. I'm hoping with the um, report that we can sort of take that back to people as well. Now we have this um, and get engagement, I think, from the anaesthetists, uh, from BMA, from um, the GMC Wellbeing Group as well, because everybody it seems we're just doing similar work around the same time. And I think it is just a recognition that um, if doctors are being well cared for, then patients are being well cared for as well. And all of this ties in together. So the BMA money for accommodation and the BMA released a, a sort of guideline about rest facilities as well. Uh, the Association of Anesthetists, like we've said, with the Fighting Fatigue campaign, um, and the BMC had a report a year ago as well, which was, again, sort of similar similar ideas around that. And I think I'm hoping that this builds on that and takes forward a few newer areas, such as the systems and the supervision, and we can, we can just keep working on it and keep building on it. Congratulations again on the piece of work. I think it's a, I think it's excellent. It's also timely around around COVID, and you know this has definitely brought a sharper focus on well-being. Thankfully, and this goes hand in hand with with all of that. 
final question for me to you is just your general reflections on not just COVID, but this piece of work. If I was to ask you, what is your one vision? So of everything you've heard in terms of some of the issues, but this document also gives us some examples on how not just problems, but also some of the solutions. So if there was one thing you hope for in 12 months time, you can look back and say, this report has helped fix that. What would it be? If I was being completely unrealistic, every hospital, every hospital in the UK would use the same electronic system. Well, that's not going to happen. So. All right. You said if you had a dream, if you had a dream. If I'm being more realistic, I want inductions to include access to everything. And I think that that is actually possible because I already, having shared this report, I've had people say right at my next induction, I'm going to make a point that I've not had access to everything because I think it's something that everybody recognizes except when the problem is induction comes and goes it happens and then it's over and then you realize you don't have access to everything whereas really we need to be asking our induction what about this what about this what about this I think that's right and you know you haven't asked me but I'll answer it if if I did have one hope for this document it is that it starts a conversation enough of us trainees read it Enough of us trainees, as you alluded to earlier, take it as ammunition to say, these are the things I expect. And if enough of us keep asking for these basic things and keep Mm -hmm. talking about these expectations, then the system will change such that enough of us say at every every induction, I don't have everything. So I hope it starts the conversation. It drums up some engagement from not just other stakeholders, but also from trust and health boards to make this routine. I hope all of this happens. And I also hope the narrative around rest facilities changes such that every hospital has a sleep pod, not just a sleep pod, but even a room anywhere where people can just go and rest. It's it's not a lot to ask for, but it certainly helps from a patient safety point of view and training well-being. Beth, it's been a pleasure. Well done to to you and others on the training committee for RCSZ for this good work. If there's anything else that we can do to help spread your message, I'm happy to tweet about it every 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 day uh, if that helps <laughs> yes and, please good and if this has a an encore a second part to this work that you want to come on the podcast to talk about then by all means we'll be more than happy to do that but yes. congratulations again both on this report and also the baby all the best in the future and thank you for being on our podcast any final words from you and then we'll come to Ceci thank you so much for having me on it's been really good um, and thank you for just spreading the results of the report because really every every junior who hears it I think it will be helpful yeah I I really think it will be um it just encourages people to know their rights and to appreciate their basic needs because we're just human beings and you need rest and you need food and you deserve to have a safe working environment and I hope that this podcast really puts that across so um we've come to a close um if you have any questions or comments about what you've heard today our Email address is still the same. It is comms at rcsed.ac.uk. So that is C-O-M-M-S at rcsed.ac.uk. It's a goodbye from Greg and I. Once more, thank you to Beth. And remember to stay safe and please be kind to each other and look after yourselves too. Bye, everyone. Bye, guys.